BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We have been talking basically for several days now about how the white power structure, particularly in the South, but increasingly all across the United, well, it's always been all across the United States, but, you know, the South is just famous for it. It's just a little more subtle in the North. Keep black and brown people down. And I wanted to talk to Don Siegelman about this. He is the last Democratic governor of Alabama from 1999 to 2003. He was lieutenant governor from 1995 to 1999. He was the attorney general, the chief law enforcement officer for that state from 1987 to 1991, and the secretary of state from 79 to 87. He's the author of, our, of a new book, Stealing Our Democracy, which I wrote a, an endorsement of, stealingourdemocracy.com and donsiegelman.org are his websites, and you can tweet him at Don Siegelman. Governor, welcome back to the program. It's good having you with us. I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on this intersection of racism and police violence as we're seeing it acted out today, right now. Well, Tom, I've, I've, I've got several things that I think I can add to this discussion. First of all, radically changing, transforming the economy, education, health care, and criminal justice is possible, can happen, and must happen. And as evidence of my proposition that it can happen, I point to myself as a Southern white guy, any war, Jane Fonda, Robert Kennedy liberal who opposed George Wallace, supported Charles Evers, the brother of Medgar Evers when he was running for governor of Mississippi. And yet I was able to be elected, as you just noted, to the four top offices in the, probably one of the reddest states in America. My point is we can do things. We can make things better. We just got to have we got to have the will, the political will and to do it. And I think and I hope and I pray that that what we have seen and witnessed over the last several days will give our politicians the guts to make the changes in our economy and education and health care and in criminal justice that will produce true justice for every man and woman, regardless of where they're from, the economic status, the color of their skin, whether they're immigrants or citizens. We need to give the white supremacist psyche in this country a lobotomy and change 
our makeup and our belief that somehow or another white people are somehow superior from everybody else. We're not. And it's time that we just got over it. And we've got to make these changes or else we're going to continue to see this kind of disruption in our society and violence and abuse by that just needs to be put to an end. I speak to these issues because I lived through a lot of this as a Southern, you know, white guy. Fortunately, I was raised by parents that had good sense, not that we weren't subjected to racism and awful things as we were growing up, but I lived through the church bombings and the freedom riders and the call for segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever by George Wallace when he raised the Confederate battle flag over the state capitol and five months later the Ku Klux Klan, feeling emboldened by his words, blew up the 16th Street Baptist Church killing four innocent girls. The same thing is going on today, and I've written about it in my book, because the verbal attacks by Donald Trump against Mexicans and the call for the wall and his reluctance to distance himself from the Klan or from Confederate flags or Confederate statues all add to give a false sense of a green light to people who want to do violence and stir up racist hatred and bigotry. And we've just got to put it to an end. Uh, I'm off yeah. my Governor, I have, a, I have an op-ed today over on alternate.org suggesting that qualified immunity, this doctrine that the Supreme Court established during the Reagan revolution in 1982, making it almost impossible to prosecute cops. All across the country right now, we're seeing police behaving badly. And some protesters behaving badly as well, but we're speaking specifically about the police here. And in many cases, they're being fired. But I have yet, outside of, you know, the cop who murdered George Floyd, I have yet to hear of any of them being arrested for things that if you or I as civilians did, would be, we would be subject to immediate arrest. You know, beating people and violating their constitutional civil rights or just their human rights, you know, just their humanity. And so I am calling for both the Supreme Court, which may be examining this issue, maybe picking up a case next week to examine this issue. There are six of them before them and Congress. And we have uh, at least one member of Congress, Julian Castro, who is saying, let's introduce legislation ending limited immunity or qualified immunity is the legal phrase for police. Let's do away with that. And I'm expanding that and saying, let's do away with qualified immunity for Facebook as well, which is a different part of the law. Section 203 of the Telecommunications Act, as amended by the Decency Act of 96, I think it is. So I'm saying here's two specific things that we can do. If you were governor now, what specifically would you do to help bring some of these things into realization? And looking back on your years as governor, what do you wish you had done differently? Well, let me start by saying, yes, we need to remove the qualified immunity from police. But also, we have got to repeal and make clear that prosecutors are sick to lawsuits and prosecution as well. The Supreme Court of the United States in 1976 gave blanket immunity to prosecutors to willfully and intentionally present false evidence or to willfully and intentionally withhold exculpatory evidence in order to get an indictment or conviction. That pronouncement by the court was also embedded by Congress in the Federal Torts Claims Act. 
We now today. Yeah, you're talking about Pearson v. Ray, right? Yes. And what has to happen is we've got to remove the immunity from prosecutors so that when police are brought, when the charge is brought before a grand jury, that prosecutors can no longer lie, cheat and steal in order to set the guilty free or to indict the innocent. And what has happened systematically over the course of this country is that prosecutors go into a grand jury with the attitude that they're going to protect the police no matter what. And they have done that consistently. Eric Gardner, you know, wasn't even, you know, Bill Barr let him off the hook. Uh, the murderer let, of let Eric Gardner. The yeah. murderer off the hook. Yeah, so we, we've got to put an end to, to racial hatred and violence on the part of police. And I have a plan to do it in my book. Cool. Governor Don Siegelman of Alabama, uh, the last Democratic governor of Alabama, his book, his new book, it just came out, it's called Stealing Our Democracy. And it's absolutely brilliant. Check it out. Governor, thanks for dropping by and talking with us. Yes, sir. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, good talking with you, as always. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that Chief Justice John Roberts, back when he worked for Ronald Reagan, came up with a way that Congress and the White House could get around the Supreme Court? Specifically, they were trying to blow up uh, Roe v. Wade and Brown versus Board, but it could be used by Democrats right now. It's fascinating. It's in my new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Check it out. Thanks so much. John in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? You know, I'm pretty sure that if Donald Trump doesn't get reelected, he's going to go to jail. And I think he knows that. And so this idea that we're going to get out of this anyway peacefully, I just don't see it happening. He's going to do anything he has to do to stay out of jail. And that's what people need to finally realize. We're talking about him as though he's going to just, you know, Oh, yeah, I guess I didn't get elected. I guess I'm going to go back to Mar-a-Lago now and, and play golf. He knows better. And he is in this for, a, for the hard game. He's, he's playing hardball with these guys. Look at everything he's done. He hasn't shown a single bit of hesitancy to do outrageous things. I agree. I agree, John. And, and it concerns me. It troubles me. Apparently, the Trump Organization is part of a group of people who are in negotiating to buy one of the right-wing television networks. I believe it's called One American News. And he was going to start a Trump TV network when he lost to Hillary Clinton. That was his plan. That was very well, you know, along going down the road there. He didn't expect to win, obviously. And so I think he's going to go back to that. And I think he thinks that now this is the best case scenario if he actually does leave the White House. And I think maybe yesterday was a dress rehearsal to see if he could get the military to go along with him in January, if he wants to try to stay in the White House and claim voter fraud somehow, you know, when Joe Biden, assuming Joe Biden's the nominee, becomes president. But the best case scenario is that people have tried prosecuting Trump and he just, you know, does what he's done his whole entire life. He puts an army of lawyers at it and whether he gets convicted or not, he appeals it and appeals it and appeals it. And, you know, he's, he's going to be in his mid-70s when he leaves office. 
And uh, if he can keep it going for another 10, 15 years, he's, you know, he, he, he gets off scot-free, essentially. I don't know if he's thinking that way. Frankly, if he is, that's to the benefit of all of us. Or if alternatively, he's thinking, as you're suggesting, that if he doesn't maintain the power of the presidency and can't keep Bill Barr as the attorney general to protect him, that he's going to be in deep trouble, in which case, well, you know, all bets are off. End. It doesn't end with him, and he knows that, too. It's his kids and all the people that surround yeah. him. They're all yeah, the whole, the whole at, Trump crime family, yeah. They're all looking at time. They really are. If we can get into office and seize power of this country, we can demand it, and we can make it happen. But they know that we can do that. They're not right. going to give up easily, and people need to get their heads around that. Yeah. Yeah, sadly, John, there is a lot of truth to what you're saying. And I think that Trump's proto-fascist moves right now. I was very happy to see this morning the Pentagon basically say we had no idea we were walking down the street to a photo op. We thought we were just going out to say hi to the National Guard. But now it's reached the point where even the military is starting to go, whoa. But if you turn back the clock three years, there were a number of people, you know, Trump's chief of staff, his secretary of defense, they were all going, oh, no, you know, Donald, you can't do that. And he got rid of all of them. So he's got about six months here to purge the military and turn it into his private police force. And I fully expect him to try. We'll see if he succeeds. John, thank you for the call. Coming up on this week's Science Revolution, how do we stop authoritarians like Trump and Bolsonaro from killing more people in this pandemic? Trump and Bolsonaro, the presidents of the United States and Brazil, are essentially refusing to do anything consequential about an epidemic that is killing massive numbers of their own country's citizens. Bill Fries drops by. He's the science policy analyst with the Center for Food Safety on the newly finalized federal regulations on GMOs. And beyond nuclear's Paul Gunter also drops by on how America is unprepared for a nuclear accident during this pandemic. Find the science revolution wherever you get great podcasts. John Harbin here with you. Karen in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I was invoking your state a little while ago. What's up? I just have a perspective. I'm in my 60s. I started working in the medical profession when I was 16 as a nurse's aide, went on to become a nurse. I did teaching. And I think the police should take a lesson from the medical profession regarding racism. First of all, we say first do no harm. And when somebody came into the emergency room or the intensive care unit where I worked, wherever it was, I never looked at that person and thought, what color are you? What race are you? What religion are you? What party are you affiliated with? I saw their pain and and I saw their need to be cared for. And I think that's what we need to find again in this country. I think we need to look at one another and find what is your pain and how can I help you with that pain? How can I make you better? Karen, I congratulate you on being a great nurse and and a great teacher, but just two years ago, a study was published, um, and I'm forgetting where, I'm sorry, we did a a show on it, actually. I had a guest a couple of years ago as one of the people who was the author of the study that found that when black people are in hospitals in the United States, across the country, they are less likely to get pain medication than white people. 
Their recovery times tend to be longer than white people. They're more likely to get infected. You could attribute some of those things to the problems of poverty, but the fact that they're less likely to get pain medication is nothing more than a continuation of this perception that goes back to the days of slavery that black people are somehow different than white people and less likely to feel pain and therefore, well, there's a whole lot of therefores come out of that. You know, women in, in labor have worse outcomes in the United States. And again, I, I don't think you can attribute that necessarily to the medical profession, but that pain study really shocked me. And, you know, we all have to work on this. But Karen, good on you. I'm very glad to hear that you practiced medicine the way it should be. And God bless you. I mean, thank you for that. Gary in Detroit, Michigan. Hey, Gary, what's up? Well, Tom, I have a real problem with this talking point that I'm hearing about eliminating qualified immunity. And I mm -hmm. say that because I don't know that people really understand what qualified immunity is in civil rights cases. And I say that as someone who represents primarily plaintiffs in these cases, ordinarily police officers and firefighters who've been fired in violation of their First Amendment rights and whistleblower rights, but also other public employees. And I think that qualified immunity in these situations is not likely to end up making as much of a difference as it seems to be portrayed by whoever is saying that this is a big problem. And otherwise, qualified immunity only ends up applying when there is some lack of clarity about a constitutional right. You clearly have a constitutional right in terms of your bodily integrity. And there clearly is going to end up being an ability to pursue these claims on behalf of Mr. Floyd's estate and other such circumstances. And that's, I'm disturbed that we're talking about potentially getting rid of something without, I think, really appreciating what it does and, you know, how it would. So, Gary, a couple of questions. Number sure. one, why is it that the Cato Institute, funded by the Kochs, for God's sake, on the right is calling for an end to qualified immunity for police, not for legislators, not for judges, not for the president. And, and you'll recall, I'm, I'm guessing if you're a lawyer, you're familiar with this, the 82 case that really defined this, literally the word police did not exist in that case. It was about members of the Nixon administration. So qualified immunity, that's not the qualified immunity I'm talking about. I'm talking about the application of that doctrine, the government employees have a certain level of immunity that you and I don't, simply by virtue of the fact that they're government employees, which was extended in the mid-80s to police officers. So yeah, given would, that, would, would... Why, is it, why is it that if I commit a crime or I'm believed to have, you know, reasonably believed to have committed a crime, I am arrested on the spot. But if a police officer is believed to have committed a crime, it can take a month to arrest them. Well, I would say that those are two different issues. One of them in terms of the issue of whether or not a police officer can end up being arrested. I think the situation with regard to Mr. Floyd was based on the idea of the prosecutor wanting to make sure that he had all of his ducks in, in a row. I know in Wayne County, for example... What does that have to do with the time of arrest, Gary? I'm if, sorry? If a video was shown here in Portland of me with my knee on somebody's neck to the point where they died, I would be arrested the minute the police interacted with me. Yeah, why was, why was Derek Chauvin not? Then you would also end the up charge being charged, would, right? Yeah. 
And so if he would be charged, then the charge would have to end up sticking and it would have to end up being approved by a prosecutor. The prosecutor would want to end up having additional evidence to make sure that he or she could make sure that the charge... I would be classified as a murderer. I mean, they could hold me for three days, believe it is, 72 hours, before they even file charges. Why was this cop not arrested? And why are the three cops who participated in this loose? Yeah, well, I don't Does it don't not know. go I'm back not... to this doctrine of qualified immunity? No, it wouldn't. I think it goes back that's my to understanding. That's what I'm hearing decision. from the prosecutor in Minneapolis. Not be surprised. Well, I mean, this he is, this be, is the challenge that we've it, got. I think he's, you know, it's, he's, he's evaluating things based on the evidence he has. You think he's wrong? Yeah, I, I get I it. Gary, thank you very much for the call, and thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. It's talk media for the sane among us. At least those of us left who are sane. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. It's from his first inaugural speech explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott. From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use. And those regulations are allowed or disallowed, ultimately, by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also. Whether there can be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting, or sometimes persecuting, individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of. It decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. Meanwhile, America has ended up, mostly since around 1980, with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, quote, about 75% of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra-wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67% support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband and more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada. And 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, end quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities, but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in parts one and two, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, a process called judicial review. 
This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review? And how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the court sided with popular opinion? And how have people successfully challenged the court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the court to have this much power. Thomas Jefferson was among them. Part one of this book dives into the philosophies that guided the men who drafted the Constitution. It also shows how in 1803, the Supreme Court set itself above Congress and the president with the power to review, strike down, or rewrite laws based on its own lone interpretation of the Constitution. Importantly, the framers of the Constitution gave no consideration to the rights of nature or even of the environment other than its sheer productive potential to enhance the wealth of the nation. Instead of the environment, when the Constitution was written in the summer and fall of 1787, the new thing in political circles was the idea of property rights for commoners, which had only clearly been articulated outside of the realm of royal prerogatives during the previous few centuries. John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America by Tom Harbin. Tom Harvin here with you. By the way, just a, f a few other things here I wanted to note in the news. Ruben Gallego, I believe is how it's pronounced, a uh, member of Congress from Arizona, member of the House of Representatives, Democrat, has sent a one-sentence letter to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, saying, General Milley, do you intend to obey illegal orders from the president? So far, to the best of my knowledge, Congressman Gallego has not received an answer Another report here, I'm getting this off the St. Paul Pioneer Press. 28-year-old Matthew Lee Rupert was accused this week of going to Minneapolis and handing out explosives that he encouraged others to throw at the police. He said in a video posted on his own Facebook page, this is one of these white guys, they got SWAT trucks up there, I got some bombs if some of you all want to throw them back. He also, quote, this is from the Pioneer Press review of his media postings, the Pioneer Press writes that uh, this guy, quote, expresses enthusiasm for President Donald Trump in several posts from 2017 and 2016, you know, et cetera. He says, I've been a freedom fighter my whole life, right? Meanwhile, in Reedsville, this is in the Greensboro area, a peaceful protest at a Scale Street gas station was abruptly interrupted Monday night when Harold Walker, 25, who is white, pulled a gun it remains unclear if the incident that took place around 9.30 was related to the protest, but it was right there at the protest. He has been arrested. About 100 protesters gathered to peacefully protest police treatment of black Americans and the recent death of George Floyd. Several hours into the event, Walker pulled out his pistol. People scattered screaming. And he was actually pointing his pistol at a couple of other white people. And then you've got Twitter suspending the account of a white nationalist group, this is Identity Europa. It's spelled E-V-R-O-P-A, which is uh, 
one of these right-wing European or one of these right-wing sites that says that people from Europe, people of European ancestry are superior to everybody else. And they were tweeting as if they were something else. <laughs> you know, this account violated our platform manipulation and spam policy, specifically the creation of fake accounts. Twitter has shuttered an account that claimed to represent an Antifa group and push violence at U.S. protests. And then a friend of mine who, uh, and I'm not going to say his name on the air because I don't have permission, but he is uh, somebody whose name you would recognize. He's an old star, shall we say, reposted the Common Dreams article, which was my rant about we have to stop the looting. And then I went through, you know, all the corporate looting of America. And he reposted that on Facebook and Facebook just banned him. I just went on to Facebook and I can't even find his name any longer. So, you know, of course, Facebook is using the Daily Caller as one of their arbiters of what is and isn't fake news. Daily Caller, this notorious right-wing website that has regularly published over the years people who promote basically white racism, anti-Semitism, etc. It's all very unfortunate. Karen in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind? Well, you mentioned earlier, Tom, that you thought uh, they should start the, uh, a second impeachment, impeach uh, Trump again, and I have to agree with that. But I did want to tell you about a method that took place in the 1950s in Colombia. They had a dictator named Rojas Pena, and the whole country wanted him gone. And the way they did it was all the business owners got together in Spain and planned what they called a national strike. They all closed down, everybody stayed home, and he left in a week. Hmm. Wow. So they basically shut down the economy. That's already happened here. I mean, you know, they're saying now that the preliminary reports are suggesting that second quarter GDP is going to have collapsed by 54%, which means we're not just in Great Depression territory, we're beyond Great Depression territory, which has to be fanning the flames of the outrage of people who are showing up in the streets. Karen, I doubt that you would see that happening in the United States, but that's fascinating history. Thank you for sharing that with us. Alan in Windsor, Connecticut. Hey, Alan, what's on your mind? Uh, Hi, Tom. I'm going to try to make it short and sweet. In regard to George Floyd, way back in the beginning when he got arrested, a counterfeit $20 bill. Number one, it's not sufficient to have a man killed. So he's being kneed on in the street. If I were there and I made a citizen arrest on that police officer that was choking with his knee, could I or not? No, you couldn't. I mean, you might have some legal right to make a citizen's arrest against a police officer, but I would be surprised if anybody has ever been successful at even trying that. And by the way, you know, apropos of my conversation just a minute ago with a lawyer, and then I'll turn it back to you, Alan, George Floyd was alleged to have passed a bogus $20 bill, which, by the way, the guy who killed him worked with him for years. They both worked apparently for 17 years as bouncers at this club down the street, this music venue. You know, is something funny going on here that both of them knew about? Was this taking out, a, you know, somebody or I mean, who knows what's going on here? Right. But the fact of the matter is that George Floyd was alleged to have committed a crime and he was immediately arrested four police officers we all watched commit a crime and three of them are still walking around loose and one of them took what four or five days to get arrested and you know what the hell is going on with that okay back to you alan yeah so that's exactly my point if it were you i and two other gentlemen holding the gentleman down well i need to talk him to death police officers and other people could have made a citizen's arrest 
against us. Why is there such a distinct difference when it's a police officer committing murder? Just rushing up and knocking him off of him could have saved that man's life. So I say yep. shame on the people that just, just stood there. They should have took a chance on being shot by the police. They might have saved the man. Well, I think life. they would have been shot by the police. They would have been shot by the police, Alan. That's, that's what I wanted uh, to know in your opinion. Yeah, it's tough to judge people in situations like that. It's oh, no, it's no, no, really I'm not tough. judging. I'm saying it's very if I was there, I would be tempted to do that as an ex-serviceman, and it would have yeah, got me well, shot. Yeah, exactly. Okay, you. Or or you would have discovered the talk is cheap. But I get it. Alan, thank you. Trina in Skokie, Illinois. Hey, Trina, what's up? Hi, Tom. My question is about the George Floyd protest. But first, I wanted to commend mm-hmm. you, Tom. The last time that I called in was mid-April. And you had said, follow the money. And I called in to say, follow the money and also follow the racism. Because the yeah. push to end the quarantine started the day after they announced that COVID-19 was killing black people for the most part. And after we had that conversation, I listened in and heard you hit that point hard. And that is so important because that is a form of soft core black American genocide. That is something we need to look out for in all the future actions that this country takes in terms of this pandemic. So I thank you, Tom. I thank you for that. What I called about was to ask people to ask themselves two quick questions about the George Floyd protest, because we as black people, they're trying to shame us and tell us that you have to peaceably protest. And it's like someone telling you they slap you in the face for 400 years and then they tell you how to say ouch, how to express your pain. So two questions to ask yourself. Number one, Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback, was peaceful. He went down on one knee. What changed as a result? Yeah, Donald Trump called him a son of a bitch. On national television. And he lost his job, etc. So here's the second question to ask yourself. Let's not forget the Women's March, the day after Trump was inaugurated, was peaceful. It set records internationally for millions and millions and millions of women marched. The streets of Chicago were so filled they had to cut off all means of egress. So I say they protested, they set records. Remind me of what changed as a result. Well, I think there was a general awakening that protest was possible, but you're right, Trina. Basically, you know, Trump just kept on sailing. Trina, thank you for the call. I'm sorry we hit the break when we did. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
So we have a new video up. It's over at TomHartman.com. Talking about language, how we use language. Language matters tremendously. And we have chosen as a society, as a culture, as media, as political leadership, etc., not to refer to people like Steve Mnuchin, who threw thousands of people out of their homes illegally during the banking crisis, as looters. Not to refer to Rex Tillerson, whose oil company has ravaged much of the third world, literally destroying people's lives, killing people, poisoning people. Uh, we don't refer to them as looters. Uh, we don't refer to the police who go into neighborhoods and kill people, minorities, uh, particularly African-Americans. We don't refer to them as looters stealing their lives. But when black people rise up and say, no, enough, we call them looters. There's something wrong with this. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. So Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, had said on a phone call with governors on Monday that parts of which got leaked to the press that we need to dominate the battle space. This morning he went on, he was just trashed for that roundly by a lot of former generals, among other things, also for his participation with Donald Trump in the photo op. Trump is now squealing on Twitter that they're saying we tear gas people, there was no tear gas. Well, yeah, there is something called tear gas, and then there's CS gas and CN gas, which are nerve gases. I've, I've been gassed with tear gas and CS gas. And then there's CU gas, I think it is, and which is what was used in the park, which is another kind of gas that causes your eyes to tear up and causes all kinds of pain. It, it comes out green, that particular gas. And you could argue that technically that's not tear gas, but the fact of the matter is that the Centers for Disease Control actually defines tear gas as any gas that causes tears, that causes your mucous membranes to burn and causes your eyes to water. So, you know, uh, Trump's uh, CDC contradicts him. But there was some question as to whether it was the National Guard who did this, which is arguably in Esper's chain of command. And Esper came on TV this morning and said, no, it wasn't the National Guard. He didn't come right out and say it was the park police, but apparently that's who it was. And Bill Barr, apparently our attorney general, ordered it. But undersecretary, former undersecretary of defense for policy, James Miller, resigned Tuesday. In his resignation, he wrote to Mark Esper, he said, you may not have been able to stop President Trump from directing this appalling use of force, but you could have chosen to oppose it. Instead, you visibly supported it. So Esper tried to clean this up this morning. He said in his press conference, he said, I did not know we were going to the church. I was not aware that a photo op was happening. I was not aware of law enforcement's plans for the park. And when he was asked by a reporter if he would criticize that use of force, he said, no, he wouldn't criticize that use of force. He said they took whatever actions they felt were necessary. The National Guard, he said, was there to support the law enforcement. You know, he's walking a fine line between basically throwing Trump out of the bus because this thing has gone down really, really bad. I mean, everybody in the country gets how ugly this is on the one hand and on the other hand, keeping his job. I mean, you know, he's trying to do an Anthony Fauci or a Deborah Burks. He's trying to trying to say, uh, but I, I not me. I will. But at the same time, he's trying to say, but, you know, Donald Trump is a nice guy and he's a wonderful man. And, I, you know, we all love him and respect him. And, you know, we're going to salute that flag. I'm not buying it, and frankly, I don't think you should either. By the way, Elizabeth Warren was in the crowd at the White House. <laughs> this is so cool. 
There's photos of it all over the internet. This was from either Monday or Tuesday. Elizabeth Warren, her husband, and their dog. David Korn, in fact, tweeted it. And, and Elizabeth Warren didn't need anybody to shoot off tear gas to clear the way for her. People were very respectful. They were very nice. Just extraordinary stuff. But anyhow, the, David Sirota's list of things that we can do to reform our police. Number one, reauthorize the Patriot Act in a way that... Well, actually, don't reauthorize the Patriot Act. Excuse me. He notes Republicans are trying to reauthorize it in a way that would strengthen Trump's warrantless surveillance power. The Congressional Progressive Caucus has temporarily blocked that, although Nancy Pelosi actually is actively trying to revive the legislation. Uh, number two, don't pass a Pentagon spending bill that would fund Trump's military invasion of, of American cities. In fact, perhaps even specifically prohibit that. Call Trump's bluff. He said he was going to defund police departments that didn't crack down on protesters, that didn't start, you know, presumably shooting and beating people and calling out dogs on them. Cool. Defund them. Do it. Hold televised hearings spotlighting police abuses. Issue subpoenas to fully investigate the situation in various cities. Number four, stop giving military-grade weapons to local police departments. Number five, fire the bad police chiefs and de-escalate. I would add to that, we need to change the structure, nature, and power of police unions. Number six, prosecute the bad cops. 22 state attorneys general are Democrats. You guys have power, do something with it. Number seven, restrict the National Guard. Number eight, pass legislation restricting police and ending immunity, and I would add to that, require police officers to have their own liability insurance. People in the media have liability insurance. It's called errors and omissions insurance. Most businesses have liability insurance. It's typically also called E&O insurance, errors and omissions insurance. Doctors and nurses and physician's assistants right across the board, people in medicine, they have you know, malpractice insurance. Why don't cops? Why aren't police officers required to carry this kind of insurance? They don't have to pay for it themselves. Their agency can pay for it. Just like, you know, if you're a doctor in a hospital, typically the hospital pays for your malpractice insurance. But if you're uninsurable, you can't work. And now you've got a separate private, you know, this libertarians, Republicans should love this. This is using the, the uh, free market, right, to, uh, to do something about this. Number nine, 15 states now, just in the last five years, have passed laws, anti-protester laws. Nearly a third of all states have implemented new regulations to regulate protest activity. A lot of this out of the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline stuff. Repeal these laws. Protesting is in the First Amendment. It is a constitutionally protected right. And number 10, politicians need to stop taking money from police associations. New York, in the state of New York, the Senate Deputy Majority Leader Mike Guillenaris says he's no longer going to take money from police agencies, uh, police unions, police groups. Great idea. It's the place where smart people get their news. The Tom Hartman program. Stick around. Chris in Seattle. Hey, Chris, what's up? Hey, Tom. I just I'm a little stronger on the point of this was a plan. I believe totally that it was a plan when they first came into office. It's twofold. One was to bankrupt the United States, and the other was to physically divide us. This in particular it act is to try and make sure that the police and the military are on his side when this all goes down. He wants 
a civil war. I don't believe that there will be an election. I don't think we're going to get to the election. I think that he will uh, literally cause this. I mean, it's already started. We've got the coalitions between Washington, Oregon, and California, and then back east. You know, he, he's, that's why he's pushing it on the governors and saying, you know, to do this. He wants the red states to, to be divided. And the problem, biggest problem with that is that they got all the guns. And well, I they don't have all the guns. Antifa, well, <laughs> they, they don't have, have a lot the of them, but they don't they, have all the guns. They have, they have the majority of them. But the whole Antifa thing, him declaring it a terrorist organization, that's about being able to go after liberals. Like you said, there's nobody really controlling yep. Antifa. So now all he has yep. to do is label Tom Hartman as a Antifa member, and he can use the Patriot Act to hold you without even telling anybody. He can disappear you, literally. Isn't yep. that correct in, in the yep. Patriot Act? If he considers it, you... It, except for the fact that, yeah, I mean, he's huffing and puffing about how he's declaring that Antifa is a, is a terrorist organization. But the Patriot Act says that you can only declare a terrorist organization that is based outside of the United States. So yeah, you can go after Al-Qaeda members in the United States. I mean, maybe he's going to say next that Antifa is actually headquartered in Holland. And therefore... I, I wouldn't doubt Well, but I, he's, he's not relied on any sort of legal or constitutional precedent he just does it you know he can't right. everybody keeps saying yeah. he can't do that but he keeps doing it he can and and, yeah. and you know and now i'm almost thinking that impeachment was a mistake only because it showed him hey you can do whatever the hell you want and he's doing it inside of all of this you know he's causing us to worry about racism and talk about something that, you know, we should have been for hundreds of years now, as opposed to the fact that he is stealing in all this confusion. He's putting people into place. He is literally installing the deep state. When he says the deep state, that was his intention in the first place, in my opinion. Well, he's taken over the state. I mean, you know, he's the president. He has considerable power, and he's placed all his cronies and all his buddies everywhere, all over the place. When he talks about that deep state... uh, this is what he's installing. That's exactly what he's installing. It was the same way when he said before the, ele- the last election, oh, if I don't win, it's rigged. He was already setting it up so that if he lost, he already had an excuse. He's doing that now in mail-in voting. Oh, it, it's fraudulent. It's fraudulent. He's already setting it up, right. taking over, you know, dividing us. It was Putin's plan. Come on, the guy for 50 years, his, his entire life's mission was to destroy this country. He just did it way too. Yeah. And I'm telling you, these guys, Mohammed bin Salman and al-Sisi and Erdogan and Putin and G, and they're laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, they're just, you know, they're getting, I think, out of Trump exactly what they want. Chris, thank you for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today we're reading from the Polar Bear Expedition, the Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia, 1918-1919. It's a story, by the way, that the Russians remember well, but most Americans are unaware of. This is from the prologue, Nizhny Gora, Russia, January 19th, 1919. They've been expecting it for weeks, hell, months, and so the men of Company A to the 339th Infantry Regiment, the Polar Bears, as they would come to call themselves, have stood night and day in 40 below zero temperatures. They stamp their feet and try not to touch bare skin on the frozen barrels of their weapons, lest their flesh be ripped off. 
They peer through the deep ebony night of their dark log-lined dugouts into the frigid tundra toward the south and east across the ice-choked river and watch for it, wait for it, and wonder how many will come and how they will perform when they do. And they wonder, too, if and how they will ever get out of this place, this frozen Hades, this last place on Earth at the top of the world. And then early on this morning, they do come, a horde of them, dim forms in the distance spread out across the Vaga River, some on skis, others on snowshoes, all of them armed, like ghost warriors traversing the river Styx, hundreds of them to their mere handful of 46. Bolos, the men call them, Bolsheviks. Now a shell flung from upriver, arcing and piercing the barely gray of dawn, flies over the village. Lieutenant Harry Meade awakens with a start, quickly dons his fur hat and overcoat and boots, and races to the far outpost where this scant group of half-dozen men stands guard against not only the enemy, but the tide of history. The sergeant hands him his field glasses and he squints through the misty, blowing snow, the only sounds the sharp snapping of frozen tree branches and the dull booming of the river ice cracking. He sees them now, coming on several hundred yards of the distance, and he quickly understands that the company is probably doomed. Now a grayish form enters his view much closer and he peels the glass from his eye. Steam comes from his mouth as the thin outpost is now about to be overrun by a nearer group of the enemy who have snuck closer and rise like dervishes from their concealment in the deep snow. Lieutenant Harry Meade, late of Valparaiso, Indiana and Detroit, Michigan, stranded more than 200 miles from his regiment's base at Archangel, Russia, doesn't have to speak as the mass of bolos descends on his small attachment. His men are already furiously firing their machine guns and rifles at this grisly apparition, all while more artillery shells spew over them and land amid them. Meade yells the words anyway, as if by rote, as if it's not too late, as if any of them has a chance. Fire, Meade orders his men. For God's sake, fire! Chapter 1, The March to Intervention. The preliminaries began on March 9, 1918, with millions of high-explosive and gas shells raining across the front between the northern French cities of Prey and Saint-Quentin. The smothering of the British-held territory continued through the week and beyond, and was topped off with a continuous salvo from 6,700 pieces of German artillery, which began at 4.30 in the morning on March 21st. Five hours later, heavy mortars began raining death and destruction on the British Fifth Army, and five minutes later, the advance of three German armies, 69 divisions in all, poured from their trenches and headed east with the aim of splitting the junction of British and French forces on the southern end of the Somme front and sending the Brits in a panic for the protection of the Channel ports. There was an urgency to the assault, and for good reason. With the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk on March 3rd, Russia had officially taken itself out of the war and relieved the pressure on Germany's eastern front. After years of fighting a two-front war, German forces were now consolidated. Meanwhile, the United States, which had declared war on Germany nearly a year before, had yet to send enough men across the Atlantic to tip the balance in the Allies' favor on the western front. But the Yanks were coming. During that spring of 1918, therefore, Germany had a small and unique window in which to act while the numbers favored them, and so the hand-picked assault troops went forward in great and deadly haste. Above the attackers, 326 fighter aircraft soared into the morning, their opposition just 261 British planes. Following barrages, small teams of stormtroopers appeared out of the deep fog and, 
Ignoring the British strong points cut swaths through the trenches with light machine guns, automatic weapons, and flamethrowers. By the end of the first day of what would be a months-long offensive, the Germans had pushed more than four miles through the British and were still advancing. In their wake, they left the bodies of an untold number of defenders, thousands of wounded and 21,000 prisoners. By March 23rd, three huge guns made by the arms manufacturer Krupp had been hauled forward and began sending shells into Paris, 72 miles away. 200 Parisians would be killed on that day alone. Those unlucky Parisians would be but grains of sand in an ocean of war that had enveloped France since August of 1914, when a gray tide of Germans had pushed across the border with Belgium and by early September had very nearly taken Paris. The flood was checked on the Marne River east of the French capital in early September, but the war, it would eventually become known as the Great War, had only begun. The Germans intended to stay, and by the end of 1914, a dizzying series of parallel zigzagging trenches, French, German, and to the north, those of France's British allies, scarred the French soil, the polar bear expedition. Tom Hartman here with you, Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, how are you? Good. What's up? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I don't understand why these social media, like uh, Twitter and Facebook, uh, particularly Twitter, they don't ban this lunatic from tweeting. I mean, he's inciting violence and hatred. They're supposed to ban people who, who does these things, and they are not doing it. And so I wanted to get your comments on that. Yeah, there was a, a brilliant op-ed in the New York Times yesterday, I believe it was, that was basically reaching out to Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, and saying, take Twitter away from Trump because he will, you know, it's basically the only tool he has. I mean, obviously he's got Facebook and he's using it very effectively. And Facebook is totally backing him up. And when Facebook starts banning people, even people who are in the media and well-known people, for simply reposting an article that I've got over on CommonDreams.org right this minute, uh, you know when 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 Facebook starts doing that, but they're letting Donald Trump do anything he wants, uh, you know you've got a problem. But uh, Twitter is starting to put warning notices on. But but she was saying, you know, just take him down. And I think you know I'm with you, Alfredo. I think it's time to do something like that. Gene in Clover, South Carolina. Hey, Gene, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I. And this is only my perspective. It's nothing I've read, but do you think maybe the trade deals that have happened could be a form of economic racism? And like I said, it's How only so? my, you know, I'm from Buffalo and now I live here in Charlotte and I've seen textile industries move to other countries, steel move to other countries. And it's those neighborhoods that are depressed you know and what's happening is as they tear these old industries down factories they're coming in and putting condos in there and it's just you know it just seems like they're putting everything in one little area that makes any sense yeah no i get what you're saying gene i i do think though that because the unions in this in the united states uh, up until really the 70s they started getting called on it maybe the early 80s even 
but particularly up until the 60s. The unions were lily white in this country. They worked as part of the system that kept black people out of, not so much out of the workplace altogether, but out of the well-paid jobs and the protected jobs in the workplace. So most of our industrial workforce in the 1980s, when Reagan started liberalizing our trade policies, radically cutting our tariffs, Sam Walton started Walmart, which, whose original slogan was 100% made in America. But when Sam Walton died, and I believe that was in the late 80s, early 90s, of course, they went all in for all China all the time. And keep in mind, it was Reagan and then later, ultimately, the George Herbert Walker Bush administration that negotiated NAFTA and that started this whole process. This was a Republican process that Bill Clinton signed off on, tragically. But I think that because so few black people had those good union jobs that probably white people were disproportionately hurt by those trade policies, which is why there's so much conversation about it in the media, you know, because it hit white people. So uh, I don't think that the trade policy in and of itself was racist. I do think, though, that if you want to see racism in the context of trade policy, look at the way uh, Trump is talking about China and Chinese people. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, we have one minute left. What's up? Hi, Tom. I guess my concern is, Tom, with the racism. It's not going anywhere because racism is profitable for white people. And why would you try to eliminate a system that has worked for you for over 400 years? I mean, it's just not happening. So now at this point, you have a political party. I call them a political hate group, the Republican Party, the maggots, make America great again, Trump supporters, the maggots. And now people aren't willing to stand up to them. Even where are uber millionaires or billionaires on the left who are really willing to stand up to Trump? So I guess their income matters more than just regular folk. But I'm just saying this time, black people are fed up. And I don't know how much more you all think we're going to take in this country. Yeah. Thank you. I totally get it. Thank you. Good talking to you, as always. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Don't forget, in the meantime, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy requires you. It doesn't work if you don't participate. So get out there, get active, tag your it. And by get out there, you know, you can do this stuff from, from home, too. Please be safe. And if you must get out in the streets, stay away from people and wear your mask. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 